Steve, are you from Western Pennsylvania or something? Mm, you're close. I was born in Washington D.C. Okay. Can you tell you got the, a little bit of the can accent? You, can yeah. you tell the accent? Mm-hmm. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue. Virgin Valley Artists Association welcomes you to the Art Box, recorded in our beautiful Mesquite, Nevada, and sponsored by the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Our association has something for everyone of all ages. Come and get creative with us at 15 West Mesquite Boulevard, or find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, or on Facebook as Mesquite Fine Art Center, also on Facebook, The Art Box. But I like to get to know you. Yes, I I had the pleasure last fall, I believe it was, to work with a group of people from the Vatans for Cultural Preservation and the Marjorie Barrick Museum for an exhibition called Modern Desert Markings. And Jen Urso who is an artist from the Phoenix area, and went out with us, and we had a good time. Jen, I think you were at the one where we looked for the... Uh, I went to... We, I was there for Double Negative for the Double Negative? Piece. Of course I should know you went to Double Negative. Yeah, yes. so it was a very jarring ride at one point. I almost offered to just get out and run to the destination while you guys <laughs> drove. It's like, we're almost there. Like, I could just jog from here. <laughs> You probably find a shortcut across the desert. And in, yeah. in any case, well, hi, Linda. How are you today? Hey, Steve. I'm great. Hi, Jen. Hi. So, and this is pretty good because we're here on a holiday. It's Memorial Day 2023. Uh-huh. And I have we're to all, keep reminding myself of that. Like, and, and we're all like, getting. We can it'll be go in do your that pay- thing. And But wait, no, it's Memorial Day. It'll, be, it'll be in your paycheck because we're going to get double time and a half for today. Oh, right. (laughs) My self-employed paycheck. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Ours as well as volunteers. Yeah. Well, Jen, you want to tell us a little bit about the art that you exhibited in Las Vegas recently? So the piece that's in the show? Yes. So, uh, you know, when, when they did the call for for proposals for the for the show, it was about like land art. And I didn't really know like what their take was going to be. You know, sometimes you don't know with the art crowd if it's like, are they fans of this art movement? Are they critical? Like, what's their take? And all I could think about was how kind of problematic land art was as far as them calling it like this blank canvas. It's like, it's such a clean slate. Having lived in the desert now for over 25 years, I'm like, it's so not like a blank canvas, you know? Yes. So I was thinking of, uh, well, I was I was looking at both Dave Maria's piece where he uh, dug the square in the desert and Heiser's piece where, you know, they just kind of come in and displace all this soil and crust and the entire biome that's living in the soil. And for me, I'm curious, like, well, what, grows there and what was already there before they came in with all their machinery and I think Kaiser used explosives I mean he must have and just kind of just 
had this disturbing <laughs> impact on the landscape, you know, just how disruptive that all was for everything living there. So I was interested in taking samples of the soil that were there and then just like seeing what grows from it. Like, I was just curious, there's already, you know, there's so many dormant seeds already sitting in the, in the soil all the time. And most of the time with the desert, it's just like waiting for water. It's waiting for that rain. And um, yeah, so I thought, well, I'll put, put this into the gallery space and, you know, in something transparent so we can see the soil and see maybe possibly roots or other seeds that are in there and just watch in slow time, like the process of these seeds growing, you know, as we water them. So it seemed kind of like maybe almost too basic, you know, a lot of times with my projects, I feel like, is this too simple? Like, is this art? <laughs> I'm just digging some dirt and putting it in a box and then watering it. I, I, re it. I remember when you came up the hill with the buckets of dirt. Yeah, I had, I carried about, I had to figure out like, what could I fit in my backpacking backpack? And I'm not like a backpacker. Like I had, the only reason I owned that backpack was from another art project I did where I walked from Redding, Pennsylvania to my hometown of, well, I lived in both Redding and Lansdale, Pennsylvania, and I walked, it was about 75 miles. So I had bought the backpack for that. And I pretty much haven't used it for anything else other than <laughs> art projects. So I was like, well, what buckets can I fit in? And then, you know, I had like a shovel and all that kind of stuff with me. But I intentionally, you know, I was walking around the space a lot first and just seeing like what was actually growing there at the time, because it was a real dry, part of the years before we got all the rain. You know, where I would see kind of spots where the soil maybe was cracked a little bit from water that had pooled and then dried, or areas where I saw some things growing. So I was intentionally grabbing, but was also very conscious of like not taking too much and not disrupting what was growing there. But I thought, well, on the scale of disruption, like this is pretty minor compared to what Heiser did 30, 40 years ago. Um, yeah, that so, was yeah. that was truly a fly on the back of an elephant. So. Yeah, <laughs> and I know that a lot of times, you know, we can justify things that way and end up doing a lot of damage. You know, so I, I still, you know, I was still thinking about that a lot. Yeah, and then I did a, I did some tests at home too. I. I tried I, three separate buckets, three different sites where I had collected the soil. And I tried them out at home to see like, well, is anything gonna grow? You know, so I had them under grow lights um, and even put them on like a heating mat that I use for my seed starts. And, um, and I grew some stuff. Like I actually grew stuff that didn't grow, hasn't grown in the gallery. I think I was able to grow some rice grass at home, but that did not, grow and you know it's because things are seasonal the seeds know when it's time to to pop up like we're not fooling them i remember seeing your art in the exhibit when steve and i went to the marjorie barrick museum your art's really interesting it gets people to think and your artist statement and i'm reading from from what you wrote it said in my work i am often making something visible that is invisible, talking or thinking about it in a way that can bring greater appreciation to moments we often ignore. This has included 
unexpected, unearthing deep feelings of grief, delineating the boundaries of our public movement, and magnifying the microscope in the most mundane location. Yeah, you know, I've been trying to think about, like, how does all my work tie together? And it does, it feels like really, like, well, isn't this what all art's doing? They're making something visible that people aren't noticing. But for me, it's like, you know, I guess it's very granular and very specific to like actual things that aren't visible. You've done a lot of, of a couple projects that dealt with grief. Um, and I think primarily that was because I lost my sister in 2020. And it was just a natural way of like going through it was through art. And it was like the thing that stands out about that is how we are all coping with grief like at different varying levels throughout our entire lives like we're never going to escape it but it's just something that whether it's american culture or not we just don't talk about it much and it's invisible you know so you're suffering kind of in silence and then for me and a lot you know millions of other people were suffering during the pandemic alone so even our normal ways of communing together and coping with a loss, like collectively, was was completely removed from us. So it seemed even more pointed to talk about grief at that time, because um, I knew that it was just something that was all these people were like invisibly dealing with. But as far as like that connecting thread between my works, I'm like, am I an environmental artist? Uh, not really, but because I'm so interested in growth and plants and food and these things that we can't see. So it does kind of tend to veer in that direction a little bit, but it can kind of go a lot of different ways. I looked at your website. I went down a rabbit hole there. There was so much, so many different projects that you did. Speaking about making something visible that's invisible, you mapped Phoenix in an interesting way by going around and mapping all the cacti that grew by the public buildings, correct? Mm-hmm, yeah. Which I thought was really an interesting perspective. Yeah, and it felt like so natural to me to go you know because it, it was something that i was realizing i knew areas specifically like by the cool cactus that i might find in that zone like oh yeah if i walk this way there's that really gigantic uh you know engelman prickly pear and i just thought you know like i would always want to tell people things like that like oh if you go over this way, if you take this route and instead of that route, then you can see this thing. Kind of that insider's look like to tourists when they're coming to an area that instead of going to all these like obvious boring monuments and crap like that, like <laughs> those things have never interested me. <laughs> like I've been to New York so many times, I've never seen the Statue of Liberty or gone to the Empire State Building and I don't care. So I was just thinking of like, well, what are, you know, these, all these cactus, like how many different ones could I find? And so, you know, I spent like a year walking, running, biking, driving, you know, put my kid in the back seat and we're like, we're going to go look for cactus today and just plotting everyone that I could find. And then it was like this learning process too, where I was like finding out about what were native cactus. Cause I didn't even know at the time, you know, I was just like, well, it's just cactus, you know? 
So I was pretty ignorant, I think, when I started all that. But I wanted people to, like, figure out a way to have a destination that was something that was, like, not <sighs> commerce space, not directed by the government, not some monument or some memorial. Like, it was, it's like, this is the cool stuff that makes the desert so unique and what makes living here so cool. I mean, having grown up in Pennsylvania, it's just like a big swath of green, you know, like every, everything's like growing all the time. Uh, I couldn't even tell you what the plants are there because, I mean, I've been gone for so long, but here, maybe it's because there's such a sparseness in the deserts when things are growing. You're like, what is that? You know, how does this work? Like, how does it survive? I loved your map. It looked like a huge nature journal, Steve. She wrote all about the cacti and drew pictures of them. It was amazing. Oh, okay. That's you were telling me in nature uh, journals. So you're thinking yeah. like Teresa Skye's nature yes, journal. Yes, yes. It was similar, but a huge map. So it's fantastic. Yeah, like I, I wanted to include... You know, it's like, I think it's interesting, you know, it's like, okay, this is the plant, but there's also so many different uses for the plants. Like we have the ficus indica, like growing all the, all over the place here, but it's, you can eat it. <laughs> and then you have like Peruvian apple cactus, which you can eat the fruits. Like we have a giant one in our driveway. And I was just curious, like, well, can we eat this? And Google, Google, can I eat? Peruvian apple cactus fruit, and it's like, oh, it's delicious. And you cut it open, it looks kind of like a dragon fruit. So, um, so yeah. you've tried? Yeah, yeah. It's like it has kind of like a watermelon type texture, and maybe like I'd say a little bit like a kiwi flavor. It's very lightly sweet. It's not super super sweet. Okay. Um, Steve, we need but, to add that to our list of different foods to try. Yes, we do. After we interviewed <laughs> Alex Harper, who's uh, from the Audubon Society here, that took Linda into the desert to very quickly get a berry off of a desert mistletoe uh, so she could uh -huh. try it. But she probably should have Googled it first to see if she was going to die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have learned, like, I've done a little bit of, like, trying to learn about, you know, foraging and stuff. I'm no, no forager. But one of his big things was like, you know, just like, don't die. Or who's the woman who does the, she's the black forager or on Instagram. She's like the, the authority pretty much on going out and uh, wild foraging. But I think one of her statements is, you know, have fun out there. Don't die. <laughs> Like, don't eat stuff you don't know for sure. Was, but sometimes you there's don't a have... lot of things you can confuse, like one thing that's edible and one thing that's not edible. But sometimes you don't have Google or iNaturalist with you. Well, it's the, I guess that's just this folk knowledge, which is interesting because you do have a lot of these classes you can take with, you know, these kind of wild people who just know so much about the natural world and. I guess we've kind of lost a lot of that because we do use Google. Like, can I eat this? But you can Google stuff and they give you totally wrong results all the time. Like, Good point. I was researching the night blooming Sirius, which is a specific Arizona native cactus that, you know, blooms only at night. They all bloom at the same time, you know, to increase the possibility of them uh you know, pollinating. And all these other like night blooming cactus were popping up. So it's like you really got to put the Latin name in to make sure that you're finding the right thing. 
but because I, I actually did a second edition of that cactus map because I found out that a lot of stuff I had put it down incorrectly. I put a disclaimer on the map too. I was like, I am no, <laughs> I am not a botanist. <laughs> like, please do not look at me as an authority. I tried my best, you know. And then, you know, to go off on another tangent, like the, the Latin names for plants are constantly changing because as they're sequencing DNA for plants, they're finding like things that they thought were in the same family are no longer. So I was at an artist residency in Ottawa, Canada, and we were in this museum of, I forget what it's called, but it's like, you know, the natural history collection, like the archive where they have all the plants and samples and stuff. And they're constantly having to shift the collection because they discover, well, this part that we had over here actually needs to go way over there because they're actually related to that other plant. So they have to move physically the entire collection to put them in the right order. It's crazy. And that'll go on forever. I, I think so until I guess, I mean, I don't think we'll ever finitely sequence every plant and living thing on the planet because like we don't even know, like we don't know anything. <laughs> we don't know anything, which which you brought up when you were talking about um, when Heisner um, did double negative, dug out double negative, and you mm. think about everything that's living in the earth that he moved that we still don't know about. Yeah. Well, and I think part of it's like our ignorant expectations of like, well, surely nothing could live here or surely this and that, you know, and and I guess it takes weirdos like me and others to be like no this dirt is really interesting you know yeah well don't um, get me don't get me going on solar farms now so yeah out in the desert because there's nothing there you might as well put a solar farm oh yeah um, well and when i was yeah. driving um when we when we had left that field trip and then we you know we went back to our cars and so i decided to go do the drive through the valley of fire so it was called right yes but, yeah, and so I came through there. It was re really beautiful, of course. And um, as I was coming out and you're going back to meet up with the highway, it's like that's where they're building a big solar farm right there. Yes, they are. And, oh, God, like what a contrast. Like you go from this gorgeous landscape mm -hmm. and then you come out and there was like these chain link fences and it was just all this trash had... Um, blown and gathered up on the edges of this chain link fence so i would say okay i guess it's good that it's not just blowing randomly into the desert the rest of the desert but it was like where is all this coming from and just oh you know <laughs> like this is how we're treating this landscape and i think it was at that time it made me think about heiser's piece and what i wanted to do and well just Construction in general, like in this grand scheme of things, what Heiser was doing was very marginally destructive compared to everything we've done you know, as a society, like all the building we've done. Like we look at New York and see this like concrete like maze, but it used to be it was an island with plants and animals and bugs and birds and everything. And like, you know. Where do you find it now, like Central Park?
about your piece, Conversation, Scribble, Tangle. I watched that several times. It just fascinated me, pulled me in. And I, I just would like to hear what you... Oh, the conversation you, one from the, way, way back? The con- Yes. Uh, you took sounds from people, public transit, and combined yeah. that with a scribble tangle that you did. And uh, I just, I was so pulled in by that. I had to watch it several times. Oh, that's interesting. So, you know, you make pieces that are so old, and as you make new pieces, you're like, oh, all those old projects are so bad. Oh, (laughs) it wasn't. It was good. (laughs) I have to remember at the time, I thought it was great. Yeah, I I mean, I was on, I I was, I've been riding public transit since I was a kid. Like, we didn't, we didn't drive places. We we had to take the bus and train and everywhere. So living here, I was always taking the bus and the train. And, you know, the way conversations just kind of blend with each other and certain things stand out, certain things recede, just sort of becomes like this wave of, of words and noise. You can tune in or tune out of it. Sometimes it's kind of comforting. And um, I think I was just thinking of like how that all blends together and blended it with this like time lapse, a very janky time lapse at the time, <laughs> drawing this scribble. And I remember that project too being like, well, this won't take me long. I'm just going to start scribbling in the center of the page and I'm just going to keep scribbling it until it's full. And then it took me like days, you know, <laughs> to finish it. But at the same time, it's like recording all these things from when I was on the bus and stuff and then kind of folding it, those layers on top of each other until it just became this wave and cacophony of, of language. Yeah, I guess it's. <laughs> I'm just kind of interested in this sort of chaos and mass of things. I'm like looking at it right now. Like, I need to look at this again. That was from uh-huh. 2008. Oh my God. Well, uh, that wasn't that long ago for me. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, wow, that's almost 20 years. I mean, <laughs> like, might as well 15 years ago. And it's still so good. It's oh, still so you. good. Yeah. Kudos for our research assistant for finding that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like we have a research assistant. Why Arizona? Let's see. I came out here when I was 14 because my grandpa lived out here, my mom's dad. And we we almost never saw them. And both sides of my family have, I have a lot of aunts and uncles. Because, you know, they're Catholic on each side. I don't know. I just thought he, he lived up on um, near near not on Camelback Mountain, it wasn't one of those houses, but he was close in an area where it was all natural landscape. Like it wasn't yards and grass and all that kind of weirdness that we have here. So there was like quail and rabbits and cacti everywhere. And I was just like, what is this place? This is so beautiful, like so unusual and awesome. And it was warm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, actually, I was here in around Christmas time and it was actually pretty cold at the time. Like I still had to wear my winter jacket and stuff. I just I guess I remembered it. And the whole time I was in college, I went to school in Pittsburgh. And, you know, I remember I, my senior year, I, I worked in a bakery, a bagel bakery. So I started at 530 in the morning, worked till 130. Then I went to school all day till like 10 o'clock at night. And it was like cold and snowing. And, you know, I ha- I'd walk to work in the dark and the sidewalks all covered in ice. 
and I'm like slipping and grabbing on the street poles to pull myself back up. And I was like, this sucks. You know, like, like I'm so tired of the cold. And, you know, I also, I grew up in a great environment. So uh, I really wanted to get away from all the, the chaos of Pennsylvania where just felt like there was a large amount of people who are really miserable, you know. I just didn't want to be in a miserable environment anymore. <laughs> I wanted to be somewhere that, well, was warm because I like warm weather, <laughs> but different and had some possibility rooted into this, like, legacy of sadness. So as soon as I graduated, I stayed for summer uh, in the Philadelphia area, and then, and then I moved out here. As soon as it wasn't warm anymore. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. You're like, I mean, okay, I'm gone. Yeah, we moved out. We came out here in September, so it's still monsoon season. I remember encountering my first dust storm. It was like we had no idea what was going on. We were like, "What is that on the horizon? Is there a fire out there?" And then we went into a store, and we came out, and it was like the apocalypse had happened, and. <laughs> It was like a full-on haboob, like d dense, intense, like dust storm, and I just like was like, no one told me about this. <laughs> it was very weird. Now it's so normal. I agree. Having grown up around Washington D.C., yeah, this the same thing. Yeah. You know, then it would be um, April, and oh, summer's coming, and spring wouldn't even be there yet and then it would be may and it would still be raining and cloudy mm -hmm. and i was so happy to get out west and, and from to me like dc was like wow it's really warm down there um <laughs> you know i mean pittsburgh is colder than phil you know i grew up out around philadelphia and pittsburgh's colder because it's on the other side of the of that mountain range that goes like through you know state college and central pennsylvania so you get it gets hit with all the storm, all the snow that comes off of Lake Erie. Uh, I mean, I never encountered like so much. Of course, Washington D.C. was always warmer because there's a lot of hot air that emanates from Washington D.C. <laughs> yeah, so. exactly. Yeah, so that's why. Well, and Philly get would get like I know this isn't what this podcast is about, but we Philly would get like ice storms all the time. Like we would get school canceled because everything was covered in ice. Nobody could drive anywhere. Like we weren't getting like crazy snow, we we wouldn't get cancellations for that. But it was just like there's like two inches of ice on the road, like no one can drive anywhere. I have a eight-year-old son named Ilya. He's super goofy and creative and funny. And I had him pretty late. Like I totally and was like i'm not gonna be a mom and i had him when i was 39 oh wow yeah yeah but he's he's pretty cool like i don't know can't complain <laughs> each year it seems to get better i feel like the baby years for me were definitely the hardest but now i've got this interesting funny kid who's like endlessly cheerful it's like, especially coming from me, I'm like, how, how did this happen? <laughs> That's great. But, 
Yeah. yeah. He's interested in art as well? Yeah, he says that he wants to be an artist. He creates these, I, I just buy him sketchbooks and he fills these sketchbooks with his like monsters. What was the other one? It was Monsters of Dragons. There's a whole sketchbook filled with dragons and they're all like very complicated. Like they have special functions and you know, this one, this is what his powers are. And you know, I'm just like, wow, okay. That's cool. That is great. Yeah. That sounds like so much fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Any rides on the any rides on the back of your bike? Uh, no, no. Um, he he rides his own bike. Sometimes oh, we do. okay. Sometimes we he, uh, we do a ride and run. Like we'll do that a lot. Where I run, he rides his bike. It's just one way of like if there's just the two of you at home and you want need to go for a run, like you got to take him with. <laughs> sure. But. Lately, he's been telling me he wants to start running, so we've been trying to start training, getting him to build up his endurance. Oh, that's, that's good. Cool. How old is he? Eight. He's, uh, oh, did I say eight? He's were, nine. I'm sorry. He's nine. nine. <laughs> he is nine. Oh, okay. <laughs> he's probably hearing me in the other room, like, I'm not eight. <laughs> <laughs> it, they grow oh, up God. fast. They grow up so yeah. fast, it's hard to keep track. Yeah, and he was born on Valentine's Day. Oh, how fun is that? Yeah. You're a passionate runner. Um, mm -hmm. How far do you run? Uh, lately, it's not great. I don't know if I want this recorded. Like, I'd say <laughs> the most I'm running lately is about four miles. But this time last year, I was doing, like, longer runs, like, up to 12, 14 miles. Mm -hmm. There was a piece I did. Well, I kind of started this practice during the pandemic and I realized this is this was a performance piece. This was like an art piece, um, like started intentionally greeting people like while I was out running, saying good morning to like literally everybody, which normally I don't do. Uh huh. Like usually I wave at runners, you know, co-runners. Co we, we were like, yeah, you're on here. You're weird. But I started just saying hi, good morning to literally everyone. So. I had a piece that I think Chandler's Vision Gallery asked me to be part of the show they called Take a Hike. And it was all about getting outdoors during the pandemic. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do a new piece, but I have been doing this thing. And so I decided to run from Phoenix to Chandler, which is 26 miles. So I did it in two runs and oh, then wow. greeted people like for the entire run, which is interesting because you could see like the variation of responses depending on like what what area I was in. <laughs> So you put it on like, video then? It was a video? No, there's always this, this hard question of like, how do you document performance? And uh -huh. do you always do it via video or, you know, what, what are some other ways? So I've tried to get away from just simply filming and taking photos of performance pieces and using other ways of like marking something down. For that one, I thought, well, the piece is just that it's the interaction. It doesn't have a documentation. It's basically just saying what happened. Before the show, they needed something on the wall. So I did like these memory drawings that kind of mapped the route from one to the next. So I would just remember, try to remember like each mile, like what were my impressions. So it just kind of became this blobby drawing of words and things I was recalling, you know, of like what I saw, what my interactions were, that kind of thing, plants, birds, that sort of thing. 
Oh, wow. Uh, and I looked at your piece of art that you did when you walked 85 miles. That was mm-hmm. really interesting. You want to tell our listeners about that? So that was the one I mentioned previously about buying the backpack. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I bought the backpack for that piece. And um, that was, so I grew up in two towns in Pennsylvania. I lived in Reading, um, which is where a lot of my family was from. It's like this small city sort of central Pennsylvania and then we moved to Lansdale when I was 10. You know I have like a pretty contentious relationship with like going back to Pennsylvania a lot so I really wanted to start to see the area with like new eyes and not be like tormented by it or resist it because I knew that there was this beauty of Pennsylvania and but I was like incapable of seeing it because it was everything was centered around like abuse and neglect and you know like dark memories so I wanted to create new memories and I thought well the best way to do that is to kind of like walk that route from one place to the other and in that process hoping that things would be replaced so like I would start to identify that space with this new experience versus this painful past experience, or at least maybe they might intermingle. So the process was, you know, drawing ends up interacting a lot with a lot of the work that I I do. So, you know, the performance was the walk, but what I did every night at the end of the day was I would create a drawing about what that walk was that day. And then when I came back to Arizona, you know, I think it was like two weeks after that. Then I created another drawing remembering those day, each day, so successively. So, you know, for like the span of time that it took me to walk each day, I would create a new drawing that reflected on that day two weeks previous. And it was like how you start to tell the story of something versus relating the actual experience. This whole This whole walk, this whole performance was trying to tell a new story about where I grew up, I was interested in how those memories change, you know, how it starts to become uh, just that one real notable moment versus these kind of lighter, smaller impressions that you start to forget because your brain's not capable of retaining all that information. You might remember just that one day in the summertime when you were nine years old, but there were so many other things that happened. Why was it that one thing becomes, you know, so intensely important in the story of your past. And I have to say, I think it, it worked a little bit, you know, <laughs> like it was, it was really good to do it. And I actually brought my sister, my sister came along with me and I was really glad, like I felt like it was important for her to come too, for us to both have this experience of like seeing Pennsylvania, like with new eyes and having this new experience. So you're, our, that piece of art was therapeutic for both your sister and you. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So I remember just thinking at that time, yeah. like, this is something that I think she really needs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had created this huge construct with like, okay, I'm going to create these drawings, this, and then I'm going to do that. And, you know, I did all the planning and did all the, you know, arrangement for it. And then she came along and she had created these little flags. Like my sister was a poet and, you know, I, I think an artist, too. She just didn't have the confidence necessarily to move forward with it. But she created these little flags that said, we shall be free, and a little heart on it. And she would plant them at different spots along the path. 
And I remember thinking at the time, like, damn it, like, she's so much better at this than me. Like, <laughs> I'm doing all this stuff, I'm creating all these drawings, I'm being very arty about it all. And she just comes in and has these little flags. And I was like, it's so perfect. Like, that's what it was. It was like, you're stating your claim on this spot and saying, we're going to be free of this, you know, like, we're going to not let this dictate the rest, you know, this pain dictate the rest of our lives. That's beautiful. It is. So your childhood was very difficult, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, I it's one of those things, I think, as you get older and you start to unpack and when you have your own kid, you start to realize like, oh, like, that's not how you treat a child if you're if you care and love them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways, my parents just weren't capable. They were very young, but they're they're kind of still the same way. So like they haven't really progressed much from that, that age they were when they first had us. So, you know, who knows? I, I mean, I think a lot of my work is about addressing things that no one wants to address, like the elephant in the room. So I know that that's tied a lot to the big elephant of uh, their uh, sort of neglect and abuse of us that, no one wanted to ever like contend with. When we interviewed Nicholas Jacobson, he also said he had a difficult childhood and it seemed like he reflected that in his, in his art and his projects. He was really focused on the way the Native Americans had been treated. And I asked him, I said, well, how did this start for you? And he said, well, it was because I had such a difficult childhood. I was mistreated. You know, I look at your art and how you care so much about the environment and the way we react to our surroundings. And it just seems like your emotions from your youth are reflected in your your art and your caring for everything around you. That's really good to hear. I think I've realized that, and I, I noticed this, especially as my sister had gotten sick and, and, you know, was tending to her, like how I really cared. I always cared about things, you know, and I was always like, this is the right thing to do. This is how we should be, you know, I want to do this. And I was told so often as a kid, like, uh, no, you can't, like, that's ridiculous. Don't be like that. You're too sensitive. You're too, you know, that's not how people are. So I was just told all the time, like, don't do those things that you have the urge to do. Like, don't care. You, you shouldn't care about this stuff because it'll just damage you in the end. Or I, I don't know why that was so squashed, you know, but like, I would be like, well, no, we need to do this. And they'd be like, no, we can't. No, that's silly. So I was always made to feel like my sensitive nature about people and the world around me was like kind of trivial and foolish. And I think I realized, you know, maybe it was the pandemic, maybe it was Tina getting sick, like, like, no, like those are the only things that matter. It's these little gestures. It's so little, I mean, and feeling it reflected back at me too from the rest of the world of like people being kind to you, like in situations where it benefits them not at all. You know, like I remember reading a writer say how people talk about like, oh, this is human nature, this is human nature. And he's like, you know, the thing about, 
you know, and they talk about it in survival of the fittest and sort of like beating people down that we're such awful creatures. But like the things that sets humans apart is our, our like tendency to be generous and good to people when it literally has no benefit to us at all. Like just, just to be kind. And it's not like we're consciously thinking I'm going to do something kind. It's just, you just have the urge to someone falls down and you go pick them up and help them. Like this is something that's not common in other elements of the animal world. So whatever the, you know, anthropological reason is, you know, I sure, I'm sure could be justified, but I, I mean, those are the things to me that those tiny little gestures are so much more significant and stick in your mind, you know, for the rest of your life. Like somebody saying a kind word to you, like completely unexpectedly or, and, and I would resist doing those things. Like, for instance, I was taking my son into school. We're doing a ride and run. So he was on his bike, I'm running. And I see this guy and his daughter and they had fallen, like she had fallen down. And I was like, okay, Ilya, wait here. I'm going to go help this guy. So I got them out of the street because they were in the middle of the street. And, you know, I said, okay, like, I got to get my son into school. Wait here. I'll be right back. And so I got Ilya to school. And this guy had already started to try to take his daughter home. She had really hurt her ankle. And I came back and I ran up to him. I'm like, all right, you grab her. I'm going to take your bike. Let's walk back to your house, you know? And I just thought, like, 10 years ago, I would have looked at that and I would have been like, oh, I, I can't get involved, you know, because I still had that voice in my head from the past of like how I was raised to not care about things. But I've managed to like unlearn it so that when I have that urge, like I listen to it immediately and I don't, I don't second guess it anymore, you know? Yeah, we've had a guest who said that it being nice to others doesn't cost anything and that's always stuck in my head it, it's a what was it it doesn't cost anything it does yeah and you broke and it's i think it's in our name you know it's, it's something that we actually do want to do like we wish sometimes when we haven't done those things we wish we had and what a feeling um, for you that you broke through those repressed thoughts that that you couldn't do anything helpful you broke through all I mean that. I I mean I know I mean I've been in therapy for a long time um and I remember having some kind of like I guess what you would call a breakthrough session with my therapist and it was at an unexpected time where I didn't think you know we're gonna talk about anything important today you know and it was about actually addressing the pain I had about how I was treated. Like I had always been very defensive about how my parents treated my sister, you know, and I was like the tough one, like I could take it, you know, and, uh, you know, like I was physically abused, but she was not. And, you know, I felt like I didn't feel resentful towards it. I was just like, well, I was able to withstand it. And I would like even get in between my mom and my dad if it seemed like he was going to physically like, hurt my mom like I would be like no like you do me first you know and um uh you know it's like I finally in this session like addressed like 
the the hurt that I had, like this sort of the mourning of your childhood self. And I remember her saying to me in the session, like, what you do after this moment, after this time is really important. She's like, so take some time to yourself. And, you know, if you feel like you want to do something or say something, like you need to do that. And I was well, first I was hungry, so I went and got a cheeseburger. <laughs> and then uh, I was near this uh, business that a friend of mine runs, and I had um, she had been like really tender and and caring. Her and her sister, who run this business during the pandemic and after my sister's death, and like had just showed up in my house one day and brought me this lovely card and like a cactus and said, you know, like, we love you so much and we're here for you. And I remember how much that meant to me. And so I'm sitting there like getting my food and I wanted to just go tell her like how important all that was to me and how much I cared for her. And normally I would be like, that's silly. Don't do that. Like, they're going to think you're a weirdo, you know, <laughs> like you just walk in and give somebody a hug. They're going to be like, what the hell? But I was like, no, I need to go do that thing because that's what we were talking about in this session. And I went to go see her and I walked in and she was walking, just happened to be walking right up. And I came over and I gave her a big hug and I said, I just want you to know like how much what you did meant to me and how much your friendship, how important your friendship is to me. And, um, she told me, she's like, I so needed to hear that today. Like, I've just been feeling so overwhelmed and I've had so much work and everybody's just been staying away from me. And she was like, and that's exactly what I needed to hear, you know? And I think it was proof, you know, it was just this great moment where those little things are exactly the things you need to be doing. There's nothing, if you're telling yourself, don't, it's silly. People are gonna think you're weird. You know, who cares? You know, it's like it's your life. So true. Those little things that we think are. You did make me cry. <laughs> We're sorry. That's okay. And and I'm, we, and, I'm sitting and, over here crying too. Yes, she so. is. <laughs> and and we thank you. You know, a lot of times we talk about we'll start talking about art, and then we talk about the humanities that experiences we we all share uh difficulties we've had challenges we've surmounted going through like real grief you know i think makes you so aware of how vulnerable you are and um and how like the, the realization that everybody's going to deal with this in their life you know, like it, it right. equalizes everybody and it makes you, for me, to be able to see how vulnerable we all are and how we all just need to get a break sometimes. Like, we don't have to just be so hard on each other as much and on myself. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I lost my sister 10 years ago, so I understand that grief and I'm sorry for That's your right. loss. But I'm sitting here visualizing two little girls, you know, two little girls, and she's gone, and that has to be really hard for you. I, I'm fortunate. I, uh, I did not have a background like you, and I have two brothers left, but 
it's it's got to be hard and i feel for you well i will say you know me and my sister had each other and i think you know even though we had a lot of contentious years of fighting and like all that you know we had a lot of really wonderful years and we had a ton of memories of growing up together like we did everything together like we grew up in uh, public housing until we were 10 and it was just us and like a million other kids um no parental supervision you know it was the 70s early 80s so we were just together all the time and i guess i would say my mother did say you you guys only have each other you know and she was totally right it does feel a little weird to be like okay well if that's the case then now she's gone and what is there i feel like i'm in this stage of kind of redefining what close relationships are like um so i've clung a lot more to like my partner casey and my son um like really just appreciating my family that i have you know Right, right. And there, there's the family you're born with, and, the, and then there's the family you make as well, which yeah. also includes your close friends. Absolutely. I'm sure yeah, they're there definitely. for you. Jen, could I ask, and be it now or you know some other time, could you share some of your sister's poetry? Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah. I, I would have to... F- find some i'm staring at all her archive that i brought back well i actually have one so for her memorial i created this little pop-up book that i gave to the guests and i used like her artwork as the pop-up elements and i included her poetry so i do have one i think before this would actually be a really good one do you you want me to read it Oh, oh absolutely okay so this one's called homa and i'm I'm a terrible poetry reader. I know people have that cadence when they read poetry. So hopefully Tina isn't looking and and being offended by this. So this is called Homa. Even before humans, the trees found it necessary to burn everything to the ground every once in a while. Even then, the skies filled with ominous and choking orange, blue and sylvan hills obscured, animals fleeing in fear, thinking at the end of the world. Even then, some of them were right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. What a poet. Yeah, she's incredible. But she was also riddled with anxiety and never published anything. So one of my goals is to go through her archive and publish her work somehow. Yeah. together a little bit so if you ever get up this way but you're a runner but we can take well but hiking and running is so different like i've gone even when i was at the peak of running and i would go hike with a friend i'm like oh my legs are just worn (laughs) out (laughs) because you're going up you know it is a little different yes so let me ask oh can i ask some other questions yeah please um so wanted to talk about water you mentioned water in the west and, and, and water in the West happens to be one of my things. 
Okay, I don't know how we can keep moving people here. And mind you, I've moved here. You've moved here. Linda's moved here. We've all moved here from back east. So, uh, Well, and before that, everybody except for indigenous people moved here from back east. So, you know. <laughs> oh, good point. Yeah. So my thing is water. And I, I did. Have, did you, have you ever read Cadillac Desert? Um, I think so. A long time ago. And I read Craig Child's had written a really great book about water in the desert. Yeah, um, of course, anything Child's writes is great. Yeah, yeah. I read his book about, well, he calls it about the Anasazi, but, you know, sort of shifts it halfway through, like, knowing how Anasazi is, like, not Yeah, you're right not allowed to, to say. Using. You have to say um, um, ancestral yeah. Pueblo. Anyway, exactly. this new book I'm reading, it's called um, Down River by Heather Hansman. And she puts in here, I'll quote this, the USGS estimates that it takes 460 gallons of water to make a quarter pounder. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And I'm like, boom. Okay. Yeah. How much water is it going to make? take to make the new uh, can in the new can factory steve i don't know probably a lot there too so we're we're moving out here i mean st george is just up the street from us yeah. and there are six thousand people a year moving into that county and oh my god yeah and now wow. they're talking about well they've been talking they don't have any water they spend i think is it the average person in the Las Vegas area uses 120 gallons of water a day. The average person, or per capita, I guess, would be the better statement, of St. George, Utah, is 300 gallons a day. They all have Whoa. lawns. They all have lawns, and it's just crazy. And they're talking about um, putting a pipeline from Lake Powell to St. George, but yet we know Lake Powell is down at its lowest right now. So I, I don't know. A big thing, I, did you have anything to say about water? I do, and I don't have it up on my site, but this last year I've done several projects regarding water. So there's a piece I have that's in Chandler right now where I mapped 1,500 years of water use in Phoenix. So I went back as far as the very first canals dug in ho, the ho, Phoenix area. Ho, 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 ho Cam, I think. Yeah. So, you know, they, they had, from the, the data I could find, it was like five different stages of canal development. So it's not like there was one canal that they just kept using for 1,500. You know, they had to dig new ones and expand the system. So it's definitely a point where the system was really large. And one of our main canals here, the Grand Canal, is actually built on like they just pretty much used the footprint of the Ohokam Canal. So that was a smaller piece, like it was cut out of paper. I was cutting the waterways out of paper so that the waterways were like falling down into the next layer. So as more water was being used, the paper was starting to fall apart. I was invited to do a piece for Scottsdale's Canal Convergence event, which is like this outdoor big two week long art you know, they have big art installations. They do augmented reality. And I had done an augmented reality piece with them previously. I wanted to create like a virtual layered map of just the Scottsdale area. So I was able to zoom in to look at all these historical maps of Scottsdale. And then I marked where everywhere where water was being used. So, you know, back in like 1940, which I think the aerial imagery goes back to like uh, 
37, but for Scottsdale, it's like somewhere in the 40s. You know, you have like the Indian Bend Wash and you have a couple canals. You have like uh, certain water tanks where like agricultural stuff's being done. And then it starts to expand, you know, they add another canal, da, da, da. By the 70s, they put in the Central Arizona Project, which is the canal that brings the Colorado River water into Arizona, Mexico, you know. And um, from that point, you see this explosion of like fake lakes and swimming pools. So this augmented reality map it documents every single swimming pool in Scottsdale too. So I'm there, I down, got all this aerial imagery and I colored in literally every swimming pool I could find. So when you view this, this map, this layered map, it sort of opens up in front of you, you know, you're viewing it with your phone, you can walk into it. So like the physical space doesn't literally take up physical space, but it, I would say is probably about 20 to 30 feet long. So you can walk into and view all these layers. And then at one point, the layers start to fold in and fall into each other. So the most recent 2022 is at the bottom and it's sort of falling into the ground. I mean, it just looks insane. Like just simply seeing where all the swimming pools are is jarring and disturbing. Like. Even like the team I was working with at um, the Scottsdale Public Art was like, oh my God, is that all swimming pools? I was like, yeah. <laughs> Evaporation ponds. Yeah. And it's like every home in many areas of Scottsdale have swimming pools, like the whole block. So you can see like the definition of the development of the home, of the street, you can, the street isn't visible on the map, just the swimming pools, but you could basically see where the street is because the swimming pools are like framing it, you know? And then of course, you know, you've got all the fake lakes and the, there's a lot of that, like up in that area too. And that was like, is this the best use of this precious resource? Like, you know, like there's gotta be a better way. Like, what are we doing? You know, they're talking about, Doug Ducey at one point was talking about tapping into some other water source like you were saying for St. George like bringing more water in from somewhere else like when is this going to end like what are we going to tap in in the Mississippi and like have a pipeline from there all the way over to here like is the answer getting more water because what I could see from these maps was that as soon as the CAP went in we I'm sure we're using it for agriculture that's like 70% of water in Arizona goes to agriculture however why are we putting millions of gallons of water into a community that all the homes have a lakeside dock, like in frickin' Arizona, you know? Mm -hmm. And they've got grass lawns and, you know, that's a whole other thing. Like, let's document all the grass lawns too. And I have so many friends who are like, oh, you probably hate me because I have a swimming pool. And I was like, look, I'm not indicting you for having a swimming pool or having grass. Like the whole way Arizona was sold to people was as this oasis that you could come to and have warm weather all the time. And it'd be great. It's never been about like environmental responsibility. And it's been a complete avoidance and 
suppression of any indigenous knowledge about how to actually live in this landscape. Like they did it for 1500 years. They're still doing, you know, and like we come in and we've managed to screw it up in a couple hundred years. I mean, the more I, I don't understand how people aren't more enraged about this, but it makes me pretty angry to think I've been told a lie for my entire upbringing. I mean, put a set aside the blatant lies of like history books completely not even mentioning anything about indigenous populations because I would be like, well, where were the people who were here before? And they're like, uh, never mind. That's not important. Like this whole bit about how to grow food, how to take advantage of what's here. Like there's all this ethnobotanical knowledge that I don't know, we're not, we're not taking advantage of. And, it, and it's not like I feel like, oh, everything has to have a purpose that serves us. But but there's a better way of like being in balance. I, I, I use the example. So I've been, I'm a vegetable gardener. Like I, tr I'm trying to get to a point where I'm growing like our protein sources are hopefully somewhat year round food and eating with the seasons appropriately. Like I don't eat salads in the fricking summertime because you can't grow lettuce in the summer in Phoenix. You know, it's ridiculous. But I used to think like, why are we growing carrots here? <laughs> carrots require a lot of water, cool weather, rich soil. Like I've tried growing carrots and then I finally was like, why am I doing this? I'm dumping so much water on these and I get this little carrot. Meanwhile, I can grow, like right now I have corn, amaranth, tomatoes, okra, squash, melons. I'm gonna grow tepary beans during the monsoon season. Like there's so many more things that you can grow that require less water. Like why are we training ourselves to eat a certain way, to grow a certain way, all based on this like knowledge has nothing to do with where we are at. Because we can walk into the grocery store and pick up anything we want. Yeah, I mean the convenience level of things. And I think that's gonna blow up. I mean, it kind of did yeah, boy, a little bit. Boy, did we get a surprise during COVID, huh? Yes. Yeah. And it's not, I'm not a prepper. I'm not like planning for the apocalypse, but, but I kind of am, you know, I'm like, I should know how to grow these things. I need to know more about soil and sun and the seasons and understand like how this works because we need to have healthy food. And I think we're capable of doing it in the desert without just dumping copious amounts of water all the time. Hey, thank you for talking about water because that's a big thing for me. <laughs> water. Yeah, I mean, it's it's become one of the, I mean, it's become a big issue. I've been talking to a friend of mine who's a filmmaker and she really wants to work on a project uh, about water. And we've been talking about doing something together. And I have a project in mind that I want to lease an area of land for several years where I'm documenting the plants that are growing, the cyclical nature of things, removing invasive, and then allowing it to kind of heal the soil again so that it can eventually grow native crops like amaranth and tepary beans and squash and that kind of stuff. I mean, that's sort of like a big long-term project, but she would be involved in like documenting that as well. But we've been talking about I mean, it was like before I even really started seeing it in the news so much, we were talking about it a lot just because I think when you grow plants, like 
you're really in tune with the water situation. Oh, sure. And and your art work that you did with the water, showing the uh, documentation of how water was used, I bet that was quite fascinating to see. It was huge. Sounded like it was huge. It was to me. I I don't know like what the reception of it really was. You know, frankly, I was kind of surprised that they wanted to include it for this event because the event like takes place along the canal it's called canal convergence uh-huh i mean they're they're definitely interested in things about being conscious of water and stuff but when you look around scottsdale like it, it's definitely about a lot of excess there so it was really ended up being kind of a critical piece if you took it that way like it wasn't overtly critical but it was like laying it out in front of you like look at this like and I don't know how anybody could look at that and be like, and not think, wow, this is out of control. We still have grass in my small neighborhood. And yeah. uh, and you can see, you know, it's watered several times a day and the water just pours down the, the gutters. And uh, you think, why? Of course, my yeah. neighborhood was one of the first here, Steve. It was 2003, I think, was it? when it was created. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a really great, um, there's um, watershed management group in Tucson, and there's this writer Brad Lancaster who has written two gigantic volumes about rainwater harvesting. And I think when people hear about rainwater harvesting, they just think tanks, cisterns. But his whole thing is about really designing the landscape in a way that you're capturing as much rainwater as possible. And the thing that gets me, in addition to the lawns, is when you you're walking around neighborhoods, everything is designed in a way to create this outflow of water into the sewers. So it's all about running off your land, running away from your house and flowing back into the sewers, which of course does not recharge the aquifer. It's people use wastewater for stuff like our groundwater is really important for so many reasons and also just for the health of the soil and the plants and everything. So he's about like kind of crafting the landscape. So it's sort of like becoming a water retention basin in a way, which also helps encourage a healthier soil. So it becomes more spongy. So it's not like just water sitting on top of the landscape. It's soaking in, you know, when we just put a bunch of rocks on our landscape and landscape fabric, and of course it's going to pool. Like it can't, like the soil is dead essentially, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought it was interesting going back to the piece that's in the Marjorie Barrick Museum. The staff there has been so awesome about like taking pictures of it for me. Deanne especially, she's like even labeling the photos consistently so I can actually look at them like as a time lapse almost. Most recently they're like, there's some green in the soil. Uh, kind of worried about that. Like as if it was something bad. <laughs> and I looked at it and I go, you know, I think that's like cyanobacteria or that's some algae growing. I'm like, that's a really good thing. That's like what makes the soil healthy and contributes to the health of the other plants that are growing. It's like this is actually really good. You know, yay. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna you're gonna grow biocrust. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's really exciting to like see it. And once I saw that, I'm like, my my first instinct though was like, oh no, there's like a fungus or there's this, and it's like, wait a minute, and we need all of that supposed to happen, and. That means something's alive there. You it's, know? it's it's good, and that's kind of in child's books. It was um, if you if you go by um, a catchment of water there, 
if something's living in it, then it's good enough to drink. Oh, yeah, he, he, yeah, he mentions that. I'd still be a little cautious. <laughs> well, you know what? I still might run it through a filter. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm obviously not going to drink it instead of drinking what I have on my backpack. But um, if I get desperate. I know I can drink it. We could drink that yeah. water with the tadpoles in it, right, Steve? Yes, we could. <laughs> we, we a hike the other day, we came upon so many, thousands and thousands and thousands of tadpoles in there, <gasps> and their little puddles were just drying up. We felt bad. Yeah. yeah. But that's kind of like in the desert, those, they grow really fast, right? It's like... They weren't, they, weren't, they weren't growing fast enough. No. <laughs> they weren't. We're laughing. Oh, I feel terrible. Well, we tried to save them, and I think we crushed them, but we tried, you know. Yeah, I didn't have a whole lot of, um, you know, these, these people who talk about their childhoods of, like, running around in the woods and experiencing nature. Like, I did not have that, but I do remember us collecting tadpoles. Because, like, we may have lived in public housing, but we weren't, like, in the inner city. We were, like across from a cornfield and there was a pond that we would go and just get a bucket and it had a bunch of tadpoles and we bring it back to our house and then we watch the tadpoles grow oh. get legs and then once they started to turn more like frog like we go take them back to the pond and let them free but yeah, it's so cool. I, this is such a clear picture of watching the whole process. Yeah, so isn't that interesting? It seems like for all of us, there's memories of a pond <laughs> with tadpoles. With tadpoles, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And the ones here are so interesting, like these tiny little frogs that like come about. Uh, I was out by the uh, my friend, the filmmaker. We we went on a field trip to try to look at the dams nearby, like Granite Reef Dam. And the one that's up uh, by Lake um, Lake Pleasant. And when we went to the one near Granite Reef, which you can't get anywhere close to that dam. Like, you can't see it unless you're looking aerial. We were walking around this area that we were totally not supposed to be in. And I look and I'm like, the ground's moving. And it's like all these tiny little frogs, like, jumping everywhere. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> we had just had, like, a bunch of rain at that point, And it was, like, a result of that. But... That's so cool. So, Jen, okay. what does the future hold for you now? I really want to work on a big project, like something that I can dig in and focus on for like several years. I've been doing a ton of, I wouldn't say they're small projects necessarily, but, you know, something that takes maybe like six months and then I show and six months show. So I've always been fascinated in, in just getting a piece of land and seeing what happens with it, like letting it be, you know, we, we have such control over our landscape all the time. So I'm really trying to get funding and trying to figure out how to do this, where I can lease a piece of land, like in the urban environment in Phoenix, and then kind of just be there to nurture it and observe and see what happens seasonally with it. Like, Taking out things like invasive weeds that are the wild chamomile that we get a lot here, encouraging native plants to grow on their own, and then starting to transition that into better rainwater collection and then allowing mulch to create some mulch from whatever weeds I'm pulling. Weeds is a bad term, but and then being able to grow crops in that space and use it as this like kind of living 
artistic laboratory. Like, I don't even know what projects will come from it, but it's something I've wanted to do. I mean, at least for 15 years. And I'm like, now's the time to just do it. Like, I'm, I'm not really a gallery artist, you know? So it's like, what, what do I want? And I really want to be able to take the time to observe and like nurture and pay attention to these little things. So I, I guess that's, that's kind of what's coming. Would the Nature Conservancy um, possibly grant or do something around that? Yeah. I mean, I, I applied for this anonymous was a woman environmental art grant and I'm looking at other things like that, you know, where, um, you know, I can have where I don't have to be worried about being controlled too much. <laughs> it's possible. Give me money and don't control me. Um, <laughs> you know, ideal. Uh, but yeah, and there's other organizations around here, like there's organization Trees Matter, um, Native Plant Society, like stuff like that, where I feel like if I can just get that initial funding, then I can start to look at places like that to partner with and for other reasons. But I have no desire necessarily to, pl I don't want to go plant trees or plant native plants. I want to see what's going to happen. I've seen other artists where they go in and they're like creating a landscape, which is great. I, I think all those kinds of pieces are really interesting, but I just want to see what happens um, in those spaces. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, can I ask one question before we get to our last question? Um, sure. Do you work outside of art or are you a full-time artist? I have um, a marketing, digital marketing business called Steady Glow Digital, and I've been doing that for the last, since 2017. I left my regular job to do that, and that was supposed to be focused on businesses and sustainability. So I have a couple clients, but I've been veering away from that because back in January, I, I also create these hand-drawn maps, you know, similar to the cactus map. Um, I'll do custom ones for people. And I was in an article in the Wall Street Journal in January. And since then, I have gotten so many commissions that that's kind of all I'm doing now is making maps. And these are like, call them like life maps, but there's other ones I'll do. Like I did one for uh, this apartment complex uh, management company in Chicago. So I'm doing a series of maps for them, hoping to work with some like bigger organizations in town too. And so I'm like super busy with that. So it's, I'm kind of like, never really was that super into marketing. You know, it was just something I was good at, like writing content and helping small businesses and stuff. So I'm kind of veering away from that, although I'm keeping the clients I have and uh, working on the maps like a lot, <laughs> like I'm drawing a lot. Say so it's called Steady Hand Maps is the, you know, because I was Steady Glow Digital. And so then I was like, well, what's the offshoot is Steady Hand Maps. <laughs> Makes sense. And is there a URL? Yeah, it's SteadyHandMaps.com. Jen, what has inspired you this past week? I grew wheat for the first time this this last this last uh, winter. I was just dying to process this stuff. Like, you know, I had so much other work to do and I was like, no, I gotta process my wheat. So I watch a lot of YouTube videos and everything. You know, you, for me, I was like banging the heads of the wheat against inside a bucket. And then I was going through like getting the, the actual grain off of the stock. But the coolest thing was winnow the wheat. The, the video I had seen, they were just showing this guy's like, you know, I just use two buckets and I just like pour it into the other bucket. You have to wait for it to be kind of breezy, but not too windy. So I'd go out there 
and I'm, I'm just pouring the wheat grains, the wheat berries from one bucket to the other. And as you do it, the chaff like just blows away so elegantly. And you just go back and forth and do that until all you have is the wheat berries. And it works so beautifully and it's just the wind. And it just felt like such a great process. You know, I just was so into it and thought well, you don't need anything else. I'm using a bucket and the wind and I'm reliant on the wind. Like if it's still, this doesn't work. So I had to be like, oh, it's nice and breezy out right now. I'm gonna go finish processing the wheat. And it's like, I'm sitting here in central Phoenix, like I'm a, like a mile from downtown and I'm in my backyard winnowing wheat. <laughs> it just felt really good. Oh, I bet. I bet. Well, Jen, thank you very much. This was an amazing podcast. We really appreciate well, thank your you. Time. These were great questions. Thank you, Jen. So we have have a wonderful day and, and go on a bike run. I will. Yeah. <laughs> if it's not too hot. <laughs> we'll be seeing you. Thank you again. Bye now. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. Broadcasting from Mesquite, Nevada, in the scenic Mojave Desert, the Art Box sponsors thank you for listening. To find our next and past podcasts, find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, where all accompanying images and links are available on the Art Box page. Questions, comments, opinions, and concerns can be sent to artboxvv at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of its hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Virgin Valley Artists Association.